this evening we are continuing our study of the book of Romans, and so I'll ask that you turn to Romans chapter 2. And as you do that, I want to remind you very briefly that last Sunday morning we completed our study of Romans chapter 1, that all-important first chapter that sets the stage for the entire book through the first 15 verses, which are commonly understood to be the introduction to the book, much like we write letters and we introduce whatever we're writing about, so Paul does in these verses, the first 15 verses here. But as we have seen in our study of those verses, there is so much that we learned in that study that will serve us well, that we'll come back to again and again in our ongoing study of this book. The second thing, of course, that we saw in chapter 1 is what I uh, would agree with those who see verses 16 and 17 as the the main theme or thesis of the book of Romans. Here the Apostle Paul, as we noted, gives us really to, uh, in advance, the remedy of the great problem that sinful humanity has, a problem that Paul will only begin to explain and flesh out beginning in verse 18. But he declares up front, knowing all that he is going to write, that he was not ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ because he knew it personally and he had seen it in his ministry that it was the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek as well. And then thirdly, we spent, of course, a great deal of time in verses 18 through 32 where we looked at very closely that difficult, hard passage about the revelation of God's wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what we saw was really a full-orbed picture of mankind's sin, expressed in various ways the Apostle Paul wrote in those verses, which comes as a consequence of his rejection of God as God and his suppressing the truth in his unrighteousness. It is truly, we noted, a terrifying experience of sinful mankind to be given up or given over to all kinds of dishonorable or vile passions and behaviors rooted in a debased mind. That is what God's judgment, his wrath is, that is unfolding in time and space against man's ungodliness and unrighteousness of life. We've noted throughout our study of Romans 1 that the Apostle Paul's primary focus in this chapter seems to be on the Gentiles or the nations, with application, of course, to all of mankind. But his focus really does seem to be there upon the nations of the world. He's laying down an indictment, carefully laid out indictment against sinful man, seeking to show in this first section of Romans that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And that every man, because of what God has revealed in creation and made so plain for everyone to see, no one is is without excuse, or all are without excuse, I should say. Uh, This evening, we begin to look at chapter 2, which begins Paul's uh, indictment against the Jewish brethren, uh, of which he was one, of course. And he will argue that these Jews had great advantages because of their covenant relationship with the Lord. And so as we begin this, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this evening. And Lord willing, next Sunday evening, we'll look at verses 6 through 11. But for now, please stand as we hear God's word read 
In Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 5, this is God's word. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God, of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, indeed, your word does stand forever. It has stood the test of time and will do so until our Lord returns. And for all eternity, your judgments are righteous altogether. And so as we come to this passage this evening, we pray as always that you would be our teacher, that by your spirit you would hold sway over our hearts and minds, that you would lead us into the truth and give us understanding, we pray, and all that you might receive all glory and praise and blessing and honor, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I know over the period of many years, of course, in various sermons, I have noted that our doctrine, our Reformed doctrine of inspiration, which is our understanding that God inspired his word and used human authors to do so and work through them, that our doctrine of inspiration does not erase the human author as if the Lord was using him as sort of an inanimate pen in the hands of the Holy Spirit. We reject what many have referred to as the mechanical view of inspiration, simply making men machines that receive dictation from the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe rightly that the Holy Spirit so worked in and through the writers of Holy Scripture so as to use them as they were, with all of their gifts and abilities, their personalities, their interests, and yet ensuring that by the Holy Spirit, the very things written down was and remains the very word of God. The scriptures, our confession says in chapter 1 of that confession, the scriptures being immediately inspired by God, directly by the Holy Spirit, and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages. 
This is what we believe that we, uh, as we hold this word and read it, that this is the very word of God that he has providentially preserved and kept pure. Well, this means then, as we study the book of Romans, the longest book that the Apostle Paul wrote, we are learning about a great deal about the Apostle Paul. We learn a lot about the way he thinks, the way he writes, the way he argues. One of the great things I think we learn about Paul in this book is how careful he was to lay down a logical, careful, and very effective argument using all that he had learned throughout his years of study and training and expressing it through his own personality and writing style. The book of Romans is Paul's great systematic theology that captures so much of the man himself. One could easily imagine him to be a top theologian, a top lawyer, a top scholar, a top debater, all under the rule and inspiration of God's spirit so that all he wrote was indeed the very word of God. I think most of us would agree this evening that if we had ever met the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, the Apostle to the Gentiles, we would have been very impressed with his intellectual gifts. He was a man above men in that realm. Now, we know by his own writing that he was not so much a great orator or preacher, but he was an intelligent man filled with intellectual gifts So why do I begin that way as we begin this chapter? Well, it's because the Apostle Paul is building this careful argument. This is how he thinks. This is how he expresses himself. And it's a very careful argument set down that leaves all people without excuse before God. In fact, it is historically viewed to be the most persuasive argument that the Holy Spirit uses to bring sinful men and women to the end of themselves. And it has always been that way since it was first written and preached. And so that's why, as I mentioned several times before, people are very familiar with the Roman road way of evangelism, taking people through the beginning part of the book of Romans because Paul is so careful to lay down a logical and thoroughly persuasive argument that should the Holy Spirit bless it to the hearing of those who hear it, they will be indeed changed and converted to Christ as God is pleased to do it. He's already in chapter 1, and we've seen this, haven't we? He's already done that with the nations. He himself says his argument as God lays it before the people, that argument leaves all men without excuse. But now he begins to express his argument with regard to his own countrymen. Remember, chapters 1 through 3, he's seeking to show that Jew and Gentile alike are guilty before God. Now he speaks particularly to his kinsmen, uh, the Jewish people, of which, of course, he was one. And so follow with me this argument. It's found again In these first five verses, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first, then verse 4, and then verse 5. In the first three verses, we see very clearly, and I think it's pretty evident to everyone who reads it, that this is man's hypocrisy, the Jewish man's hypocrisy especially, judged by God. 
You immediately see a transition in this chapter. You have the word therefore, which reminds us to look previous to this verse, to what Paul had said just prior to it. And he simply says, now, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Paul is using here a rhetorical literary device by raising an opponent that he anticipates will speak to him regarding what he has risen. And so he refers to him here as you, O man. Now, we normally think of this term that I'm going to use in a negative sense, but I think it can be used in a neutral and even positive sense. What Paul is doing is raising a straw man, erecting something, an opponent that he imagines will respond to everything that he has just said. He's anticipating a response to what he just wrote in verses 18 through 32 in chapter 1. Now, he'll do this later. Uh, We don't have time to look at it uh, closely. But later in chapter 6, after he talks about the wonders of God's grace, that it's far greater than our sin, remember what he says in the beginning of chapter 6. What shall then we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, there he's anticipating someone responding to what he just wrote at the end of Romans chapter 5. In this chapter, he's doing the same thing. And who he has in mind, and this is the first thing I think for us to settle very clearly, who he has in mind is really the Jew to which he is writing. Remember, this church in Rome is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He dealt with the nations or the Gentiles in chapter 1. He's now turning his attention, it seems, to someone else. He raises this sort of straw man in a very positive sense, someone who is going to speak to what he has just said, and he's going to deal with them directly based on what he writes here. How do we know it's the Jew? I think there are lots of reasons. If you continue to read through, we haven't read it already tonight, but you read through the verses that follow, you can very clearly see he's going to begin to talk about the Jew in relation to the law. And in verse 17, I think it's very clear, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, You see, his focus is definitely shifting away from the Gentile reader to the Jewish reader after what they heard about what Paul said to the Gentiles. Now, you may remember in previous weeks as we studied chapter 1, I said several times that when the Jewish reader of chapter 1 reads that, the tendency that was very common in Paul's day and in Jesus' day as well was for the Jewish reader to look at that list of sins and to say, well, that surely doesn't describe us. We're different than those Gentiles. Yeah, they're really bad. Amen, Paul. Preach it, Paul. That's what they would have said naturally. Surely Paul is not speaking about us. Well, if you're common with, you're familiar with lists like this, you have it in chapter 1 at the end in verses Uh, 28 through 32. You see it again in chapter 3. We'll see another list of sins. It's very common. In fact, it's almost predictable that even we, as we read such lists, we automatically begin to compare ourselves with what's on that list. And we begin to say things like, wow, you know, I've never done that. So I think I'm pretty good. I'm in the clear. I don't do that. 
So I guess I'm okay with God. A common thing that people often say, well, at least I never killed anyone. We have a way of elevating some sins over others. And that's often the critique that Christians face as we've just come through a study of chapter 1, which deals with the sin of homosexuality and all of the dishonorable passions. Often the critique against Christians is the world says, well, you guys just keep on picking on these same sins over and over again because we have a tendency sometimes to elevate some sins over another and to sort of separate ourselves from those sins. Now, this leads to a way in which we can intentionally or unintentionally condemn others more harshly while at the same time excuse our own sin. It's certainly, again, something that the Jewish reader of Paul's day would have been accustomed to doing as they looked at what Paul said about the Gentiles. But listen to Paul's scathing rebuke and critique in these verses. Listen to what he says. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. He's assuming that the Jewish reader will judge the Gentiles to be far more guilty of sin than they are. And then he goes on to say, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see, this is the indictment against the Jewish reader as Paul writes to the church in Rome. Their tendency is to elevate the sins of the Gentiles, to diminish their own sins. And yet, Paul says, as you judge them, In the way that you're judging them, you don't look and see that you're actually doing the very same things. You're not living in the way that God calls you to live as those who are called to be his people. Now, this kind of critique, this kind of judgment, this kind of hypocrisy ought to sound very familiar to us. There are two places in the New Testament where The Lord himself and then the apostle later talks about this very idea of judging others harshly and critically and failing to see that we ourselves have done the same thing. How can we ever forget the powerful words of our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he condemned this sort of unrighteous and blind judgment Now, we remember that he wasn't condemning all kinds of judgment. He actually calls us to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves, to discern the fruit that we see in others' lives in the very same uh, section of Scripture. But here he writes this, Judge not, the Lord said, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, where that when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Uh, Paul wrote as well in Philippians a very similar sense of our Lord's words there in Matthew 
when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, and this was his judgment, if you will, in his flesh. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was a card-carrying son of Abraham, something that most Jews believed would have protected them from God's wrath, and something that Paul himself would deal with directly later in Romans chapter 4 as he brings in the whole story of Abraham, and something that Jesus also dealt with in John chapter 8 as he needed to remind the Jewish hearers, the scribes and the Pharisees, that they were of their, their father, the devil, and not Abraham, because they did not do the works that Abraham did. You, the judge, Paul says, practice the same things. You have no place to judge others. And the indictment is seen very clearly in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, then, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer, of course, is that they would not. They would not escape God's judgment. You heard this morning, and Pastor Fisher and I, we don't talk about sermons before we preach them, but you heard a lot of this this morning in the life of Jonah, didn't you? Jonah's, Jonah's judgmental spirit and attitude in not wanting to go to Nineveh, judging those people as more guilty than he himself was. He would have judged them because of their unrighteous behavior. And yet, what was Jonah doing? When God commanded him, his prophet, to go and to preach, what did Jonah do? He disobeyed God and he ran the other direction. What did the people do when they failed to give thanks to God for everything? Jonah was a man full of ungratefulness to God for all of his blessings and his mercy. And he would not see and acknowledge God's goodness to sinners as he himself had experienced. Jonah was committing the same sins in many ways that the Ninevites would have been guilty of as well especially in his rebelling against God, running from God, and his attitude of his heart and his anger before God. And so Jonah would have fallen under this judgment and indeed did fall under that judgment, even as God rescued him from that judgment through the big fish. The point is clear. Jonah falls under this condemnation, and so, do every, so does everyone who judges others while doing the very same things themselves. This, again, is Paul's great conclusion. You will not escape the judgment of God. In fact, you are more guilty, is his point. You're more guilty than those who, that you pretend to judge. For God's judgment alone is just. He sees all. He knows all. Now, this is not only true, of course, of the Jews in Paul's day. It was true of Paul before his conversion. But it's so easy for us as Christians, again, as we've heard this morning, as we look at our position and our works to judge others. We so naturally want to compare ourselves to those around us. We, we lower the standard of God's perfection, which Jesus tells us that in order for us to be in heaven with God, we must be absolutely perfect. 
And because we don't like that, because we can't possibly measure up to it, in our minds and hearts, we often find ourselves judging ourselves by the standard of others around us. I'm far better than they are, therefore I'm in a safe place. I need to, with the Apostle Paul, and perhaps you join me every day in reminding ourselves that we are no better. We are no better than anyone else around us. And we need to cultivate what Paul came to know through the gospel. I am the chief of sinners. I am the least of the followers of Jesus Christ. That attitude will protect us, keep us, and help us to remember that we never sit in the place of judgment of others. That belongs only to God. And if we do, we ourselves will fall under his judgment, which is always righteous and true. Well, there's a second sort of indictment, a layer of indictment that Paul adds as he seeks to bring his kinsmen to a proper understanding that all men are guilty before God. And this one has to do with how his kinsmen, according to the flesh, presumed upon God's goodness. Verse 4 talks about this. The language, again, is very striking. It comes in the form of a question. Uh, Paul uses questions in Romans to sort of uh, cause people to think very carefully about what it is that he's writing. It is, again, a literary tool. And so he asks this question, or do you presume, he says, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. One of the things Paul will do in the book of Romans, and I think what he begins to do here as he talks about this goodness and kindness, forbearance and patience of God, is Paul is showing the Jewish readers of the advantages that they had because of God's covenant with them through Abraham, their father. For instance, in Romans chapter 3, He writes, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles or the writings of God. Speaking in Romans 9 in a very specific context, Paul writes about his love for his fellow Israelites And he says this, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul makes a very strong argument throughout Romans, that to the Jew to whom he writes, they were the recipients of great blessings and advantages. And that really is behind what Paul says here in verse 4. In this literary device, he is causing them to think very carefully of those advantages and the blessings of God's kindness to them over the countless years of their existence. All of that, Paul says, and and he wants them to stop and to think 
Much as we sang this evening in uh, hymn 56 about God's mercies, counting God's mercies and his blessings. They're beyond our ability to count. The goodness, forbearance, and patience of God to this people, to the Jewish people, is beyond comparison and sets them in a place of great advantage. Think of their whole story, their lives, from the time of Abraham, calling in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, down through Moses and their deliverance from the land of Egypt and from Pharaoh and from their bondage to slavery there. Think of his countless blessings to them as they wandered through the wilderness and God's faithful provision for them. Think of his provision of the land and the allotments for every part of his people. Think of his provision of prophets and kings and priests to serve them, all a foreshadowing of that one prophet, priest, and king that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think of all his goodness to them. Think of the prophets and the writings of all the prophets that as they came to the people, one of the things they did, all of them did, was to remind the people of God's goodness to them and to plead with them to walk in God's ways, to leave their idols and to return to the worship of God. Think of the many times through kings like Hezekiah and Josiah and so many countless others through the provision of judges in their days uh, again, in the promised land, as he provided judges for them to, to guide them and to direct them. Think of all of those blessings. And over all of their history, you could write this verse and you could say, consider the forbearance and the patience and the kindness of God to his people. Think of prophets like Hosea, who spoke to the people as uh, a mouthpiece for God saying, I was like a husband to you, but you were like an unfaithful wife. Or Jeremiah, who with tears pleaded with the people no longer to live in their idolatry and their disobedience. Or Isaiah and Ezekiel and countless others who came to the people expressing this very same thing. You see, what Paul is asking is one of the most important questions that we can ask, and that is, has God been to us kind and patient? Forbearance and patience are really the same idea. And do we, in light of that kindness and patience, do we presume and take for granted God's kindness to us? Why? Because every expression of kindness and love and goodness and care and patience towards us is always meant to drive us to repentance, to drive us to repent of our sins, to cause us to live in obedience to his word out of gratitude for what he has done for us. You see, that's what Paul is saying here. He's actually saying you are coming under God's judgment if you presume upon the riches of this kindness that has been shown to you. One commentator, I think rightly, says, you know, this is not just about their history, meaning their ancient history. This is not about everything I've just sort of taken us through by way of illustration. This actually is a current thing as well. 
because these are the people, those uh, Jewish people in Paul's day, many of whom are still not believing, yet have seen the kindness of God expressed in the sending forth of his son. And they have forsaken and they have presumed upon that kindness. They have rejected the provision that God has given to them as their savior in his son. And he's going to warn them, not only here, but in many places throughout Romans, that that rejection leads to the rejection of God of them. He's going to say that very clearly in Romans 9 through 11. This is the point he makes here. The presumption upon God's goodness, his kindness, and his patience towards them. Well, that leads us to one more picture that he gives us here. One final picture before we make application of these things, and that is, again, a most terrifying expression in verse 5. Because of your hard and your impenitent heart, there's that failure to be led by God's goodness and his forbearance to repentance. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, this is, remember I said about Paul, we learn a lot about Paul. We learn how he thinks. We learn how he sort of uh, puts his arguments together. He's bringing wrath again here. He's talking about what he spoke of in chapter 1, verse 18. He's talking about a wrath and an anger that is revealed and being revealed now in this world. And he's making a connection between that wrath and the wrath that will finally be revealed at the coming of the great judge, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose judgments are true and righteous altogether. You see, you have both. Paul says you have a temporal expression of God's wrath because of man's sin. It's happening all around us now. It explains what's going on in our nation it explains that we are under, in many, many ways, the very judgment of God that Paul expresses in chapter 1. Pastor Fisher noted that again this morning as he saw the connection between Romans 1 and the book of Jonah. This is the expression of his wrath. But brothers and sisters, we know, and Paul tells us here, that there is still yet to come the full expression and final expression of his wrath when Jesus Christ returns if the kinsmen of Paul, of whom he is writing here, continue to harden their hearts against the Lord, if they refuse to allow the goodness and patience of God to lead them to repentance, then they are storing up wrath for themselves. Now, this phrase, storing up, is a very interesting one. R.C. Sproul, in his very brief but helpful commentary on the book of Romans, writes this, when Paul talks about storing up wrath, the allusion is to the secular culture where a person builds a treasure by investing a little bit at a time. As long as stubbornness persists, men are adding grievous insults to God so that when they come to the end of their lives, they have this huge negative balance of sin for which they will be judged. It is like interest compounded daily, but all of it in our debt column, not in assets, but in debt, something that we will have to pay, if you will, and to answer for. 
That's what Paul says here. And these, as we saw in chapter 1, are terrifying thoughts and ideas that not only for the Jewish people, but for all who experience, as we all do every day, the goodness of God who sends the rain upon the just and the unjust, the kindness of God allowing us to take a breath and to live and exist and to enjoy family and friends and the blessings of this life for which we do not give God thanks. As we live that kind of life, the Bible says, and Paul says clearly here, that we are storing up, adding to our great debt, compounded daily, only to answer for it in the great judgment. As we conclude our service tonight after the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing this great hymn by John Newton. It is a wonderful hymn, Day of Judgment and Day of Wonders. At his call, the dead will awaken, rise to life from earth and sea, all the powers of nature shaken by his looks, prepare to flee, careless sinner. What will then become of thee? Paul encourages his readers, certainly at this point, to flee the wrath to come, to come to the one who has bore that wrath for us, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, this is just the beginning of what his indictment against the Jewish Uh, people to whom he writes in Rome is all about. They were guilty of judging others while doing the very same things themselves. They were guilty upon presume or presuming upon the the goodness and the patience of God and they were guilty of storing up wrath for themselves against that great day. Three things I think that for me at least are helpful for us to remember. Number one, as you consider these truths, let us not forget that God alone is the righteous judge. Only God is able to judge, not us. We never sit in the place of the judge. We never sit in the place of condemnation of others as we seek to reach others uh, for Christ. We don't come against their sin and condemn them in their sin. We seek to point them to the one who is able to deliver them from their sin and the bondage of that sin. We don't ever set ourselves up as the judge of others, allowing ourselves to see ourselves uh, more as those who have no problems with sin. Our confession, or catechism, I should say, is very clear with respect to the nature of sin. Question 83, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins, answer, in themselves and by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. I think we've seen that in chapter 1. We've seen how Paul elevates and, and lifts up before the reader's eyes some of those sins which turn whole creation order upside down. They're more heinous, it seems, in the Bible, sexual sins especially, than others. But we ought never to make the mistake that if we're not guilty of those, then we're just simply innocent. We're not innocent ever. What doth every sin deserve? Question 84. Every sin, not just sexual sins. Every sin, gossip, slander, cruelty, hatred, arguing, debating, disobedience to parents, all the ones that we've read just recently at the end of chapter 1. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. I love the next question. We often forget to ask this in this context as we talk about sin. What doth God require of us? 
that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of our redemption. And so I would call you tonight, as we think about God's righteous judgment, there is nothing hidden from him. There is no one here tonight who sits before me or the presence of God in this place, whom God does not already see and know every thought of our hearts and lives. And God says to us that his wrath will come against all ungodliness of life and unrighteousness of life in this world and that we will store up for ourselves wrath to come if we do not repent now and turn to the one who has borne the wrath of God for all who would believe in him. And so I call you to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, let us not forget his kindness to us. It is his kindness, you see, and his patience with us. It's his kindness and patience that leads us daily to repentance. Consider his goodness and his severity as well. Consider his kindness to you in countless ways throughout your life. Uh, in countless ways. I think of my own life and the countless ways God has preserved me and kept me from sin, from rebellion. He has kept me by his grace all of these years. Consider his kindness. It will lead you to repentance by his grace. I would especially tonight, especially appeal directly and sincerely and with all love to our covenant children who sit here tonight. Do you, do you know and understand, children who are raised in a Christian home, how great the kindness of God is to you? Do you understand that by placing you in his providence in a home where your parents love the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to raise you, that that is in a beautiful expression of his kindness to you? It is a wonderful picture of his kindness, and we should never spurn that. We should never reject it. We should never take it for granted. We should never presume upon it. You know, we don't enter heaven on the coattails of our parents. We don't enter heaven on the coattails of anyone that we might look up to, that we might follow by example. We stand before God alone, and we ought never to presume upon his kindness, but always allow it to lead to repentance. You know, there's a terrifying picture and again, I mean this with all love, but it's a warning, I think, to all of us. There's a terrifying picture in the scriptures. The man's name, of course, is Esau. Matthew Henry writes this as we read about Esau in Hebrews 12. Esau, who though born within the pale of the church and having the birthright as the eldest son and so entitled to the privilege of being prophet, priest, and king in his family was so profane as to despise these sacred privileges and to sell his birthright for a morsel of meat. He was rejected of God. He found no place of repentance in God or in his father. 
the blessings was given, were given to another, even to him to whom he sold it for a mess of pottage. Esau in his great wickedness had made the bargain, and God in his righteous judgment ratified and confirmed it and would not suffer Isaac to reverse it. When the day of grace is over, and sometimes it may be in this life, they will find no place for repentance. They cannot repent a right of their sin, and God will not repent of the sentence he has passed upon them for their sin. And therefore, as the design of all, Christians should never give up their title and hope of their father's blessing and inheritance and expose themselves to this irrevocable wrath and curse by deserting their holy religion to avoid suffering, which, though this may be persecution as far as wicked men are concerned in it, is only a rod of correction and chastisement in the hand of their heavenly Father to bring them near to himself in conformity and communion and repentance. Those pictures are there to warn us not to forsake the goodness of God that he has shown to us. And so to those who are here and to those who may be listening, I would appeal to you, do not forget or forsake his kindness, but let it do its work and let it lead you to repentance. For while there is still day, there is still hope. Thirdly, let us not forget the day of his wrath. By this I mean remember what Peter says immediately after the verses that were read earlier. When Peter thinks about and looks at the judgment of God against this world, when he thinks about the coming of Christ and his final judgment, he writes these words, Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let us keep this picture always before us. Let it have its work in our lives. Let us live in light of that day. Let us walk in repentance and faith before the one who has called us. As we prepare to come now to the Lord's table, it's so fitting in my mind that we prepare to come to this table, all of us, on equal footing with respect to our need. None of us are greater than the ones who sit next to us. None of us are more righteous than the ones who sit near us. We never come to this table with the attitude that the Lord speaks of in this text. Surely not me, Lord. Surely not me. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is I, Lord. It is I, the cause of your suffering and your death. My sin is why I come, because of my great need. Let us prepare our hearts then to come. Let us pray. Our Father, we would never say those words. Surely it's not us. We're not guilty of these things. Father, we are far more guilty than we would ever imagine. For your word uncovers every secret thought and attitude, every desire of our hearts, every concealed action. Every thought is laid open and bare before you. And your word uncovers it all. And so we would simply ask in these moments that you would search our hearts 
that you would see if there be any wicked way in us and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Be gracious now to us as we prepare to come to this table, we pray. And we pray it all with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.